0: Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 40, 48. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Hey, thank you. Hey, good morning, everyone. We are continuing in our new series, Did Jesus Really Say That? And as we're learning these past few weeks, there are some passages uh, that are very challenging passages that uh, we wrestle with, that create uh, tension or dissonance in our heart. What do we do with these passages? And there are many. And as Jesus taught, um, people responded, and often their response was because uh, of the tension. Uh, either his answer to questions or uh, his questions, following questions, created In people. And the same is true for us today. And so uh, this morning we're looking at one from the Sermon on the Mount. And in particular, it's telling us that we're to love uh, our enemies. We're to love our enemies. Now, there are a lot of axioms or um, proverbs, if you will, within our culture that deal with how we should respond to our enemies. I was thinking of a couple of them as I was preparing for the sermon. One would be uh, keep your friends close and your enemies closer. That's really good. All right, That's really good. You guys got that one. Uh, another I read recently was um, defeat your enemy by making your enemy your friend. Oh, that's really good. Or Uh, Maybe you're from an Italian culture, like my wife, Lori. Okay? And uh, uh, their response might be, You're dead to me. (laughs) All right? That's, uh, okay. Uh, So there there are are many axioms or um, cultural proverbs, things we apply to how we should respond um, to our enemies or those... Uh, who uh, have hurt us. Um, same was true in Jesus' day, and really, uh, that's the context of our passage today. But to really understand where Jesus is getting at, we have to kind of back up and, and read a little bit uh, of some of the verses prior to this one to really make sense of it. So if you have your Bibles, um, I'm going to ask you, just to open to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. And you're going to notice something. Uh, Beginning in verse 17, it talks about the fulfillment of the law. And Jesus makes it very clear. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. To fulfill them. And uh, he goes on to to uh, say to those that are listening in his explanation in verse 20, I I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you certainly will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now this is going to set up his teaching here in in chapter 5. And what he's going to establish is this. That he is indeed the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. And the fulfillment is seen in his very life. And how he lived. Uh, he fulfills uh, what the law and the prophets were pointing to. Uh, he is the completion of, of, of everything that they stood for. And his life as a model And an example that serves to us of what that looks like. He is the only person who has ever lived a perfect life, a sinless life. And so his life fulfills in every way the intent of the law and the prophets. Okay? But when he says, your righteousness has to surpass that. Of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, otherwise, you are not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. What he's laying down now is the standard <clears throat> for discipleship. For those who are going to follow him, for those who are going to answer his radical claim on their lives, and they're going to respond to his invitation to be his disciples. That their lives, as followers of Christ, their lives as disciples um, is going to involve more challenges and is going to be harder than the life of a Pharisee or a teacher of the law who is merely trying to interpret and live out literally uh, to the best of their understanding Uh, all that the law uh, in their mind intends. So the standard for a disciple is higher for a Christ follower. Okay. And now he's going to do something. He's going to take six examples from the law and uh, he is going to say, you've heard this but I'm going to tell you, no, it's this. And and these are called uh, antithesis or antitheses. And there's six of them. Uh, the first he's going to deal with is murder, then adultery, then divorce, then taking of oaths, then revenge. And the last one is love for enemies. Six of them. In each case what he's doing, he's saying this is in fact the proper application of the law. This is the proper application of the law. And in fact, the reason that the Pharisees and the scribes uh, may not have been properly applying the law is because that their motives and their intent Weren't correct. Uh, They lived in the law out of a heart that was sinful. And, And so what you see represented is the best that a sinful heart can produce. But God intends so much more for us. And what Jesus is going to do here in the Sermon on the Mount. He's going to say what I'm going to lay down is the fulfillment. I mean, the best it possibly can be. This is how it's supposed to be. I'm going to demonstrate it with my life and I'm going to teach you. And as a disciple, I'm going to invite you to follow me into this, to grow into this. And of course, as we learn more about the Christian faith and we learn that it, it, it's a matter of not being able to do it on our own, but it comes through a regeneration that takes place when Christ enters our heart and life. Um, or better said, when we follow him and we submit to the work of his spirit in our life, uh, we begin to be sanctified and sanctification is uh, being set aside for God's purposes and we grow in Christ-like character and nature. And so what Jesus is saying here is the standard for a disciple, the standard for one who's going to inherit the kingdom of heaven is higher than what you see fulfilled imperfectly in the lives of the Pharisees and the teachers. Does that make sense? And so he's going to say, you've heard it said, but I tell you, this is the way it's supposed to be. This is really the standard. And that's what he's doing here in Matthew 43 through 48, the sixth of the sixth antithesis. Now, in Jesus' time... there was the law of retribution. It comes uh, from Exodus, verses 21 through 24. And that law was established in order to keep people from one-upping each other when they were wronged by somebody else. So in a, in a tribal, kind of nomadic societies, uh, if... Somebody did something wrong to you or hurt a member of your family or a friend, um, stole from them, hurt them physically, killed them God forbid. Uh, in human nature it calls for revenge. And almost always the revenge is greater than the original offense or it is equal to the original offense and then some. Because you really deserve it. Because you did it first. I'll show you. Make sense? And and so, I kind of came back to Lori's Italian relatives. Um, Just teasing. I kid her about that all the time. Um, Yeah. You'll get your review. I know. Uh, Anyway. And so, what the law was intended here... And Exodus was to put an end to that. It's to say, listen, if you want retribution, retribution should be equal to the offense, not exceed it. In other words, you shouldn't escalate. And so this law was established to prevent escalation of offenses. It's a law of retribution. This happens, then this happens. You've heard it said... An eye for an eye, right? Don't take an eye and an ear for an eye, just another eye. That's what he's referring to. That's the law as they understood it. Okay? And, and Jesus is saying, no, there's another law. It's, it's, it's the law of the kingdom of heaven. And the law of the kingdom of heaven isn't the law of retribution The law of retribution was established because your hearts were hardened. Because you needed something to govern your hardened hearts. To control your impulses for revenge. But in the kingdom. And those who are my disciples need to understand. There is the perfect law. There's the law of love. And. You've heard it said an eye for an eye, but now he's going to say something completely different and unexpected. He's going to respond not by encouraging and reinforcing the law of retribution, which they're all familiar with because it comes from Exodus, and they knew that, but rather the law of love. That's what governs the kingdom of heaven. And if you're going to be my disciple... Your response to your enemies and those who hurt you has to exceed the law of retribution. It needs to fulfill the law of love. You need to follow my example. Got it? Does that help you make sense of all this? Now, let's look at the verses a little more closely. You've heard it said, Love your neighbor, okay? Love your neighbor. Well, Leviticus 19.18. Love your neighbor. Love your neighbor. But I tell you, uh, and hate your enemies. Now, there was actually never a place in the Old Testament where it said to hate your enemies. How did they get to that place? Why was it they, that, that this was a common phrase? Love your neighbor. Hate your enemies. Because uh, of... Deuteronomy 6.5. Deuteronomy 6.5 says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and strength. Right? And then Jesus in Matthew 22 combines the two. Says, you know, you are to, to uh, love the Lord your God and you're also to love your neighbor. And on these two things hang all the laws and the prophet. Right? So, how did you get from that To hating your enemy. Because it never says to hate your enemy. In fact, there are actual places in the Old Testament where the response to enemy is to show mercy. So where did this come from? Well, pagans, heathens, sinners, were thought to be enemies of God. And if they're enemies of God, and I'm to love God, then by hating them, hating those who are God's enemies, I'm demonstrating my love for Him. So it's kind of a backdoor way of fulfilling Deuteronomy 6.5. I love you so much, God, that your enemies are mine. In fact, I hate them. That's the thinking where this comes from. And Jesus is going to correct that. He said, if you heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies. Love your enemies. Now, in the context here, this is a perfect love. It's a love that involves, yes, there's feeling towards your enemy. You, 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 should, you should love your enemy but there's also actions. How do you treat your enemy? How do you act towards them, which reflects your heart for them? So it's both. It's that 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 perfect about agape here, love, that Jesus is talking about. And so someone hearing this might say, Okay, listen, I can I can do or try to do some good things for my enemy. All right, I'll let my actions, I'll, 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 I'll try not to respond in kind. I'll, I'll try to, to treat them well, even though they don't deserve it. But don't ask me to actually love them. I mean, to have feelings for them. And then Jesus is responding because he, he's understanding how people are thinking. Now follow this. You've heard it said, love your neighbors and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Pray for those who persecute you. So here's the corrective. If you think, well, maybe I can do something good for an enemy, but don't ask me to really love them, I mean, to feel something for them in my heart. Jesus is saying, hey, you know what? Pray for them. And if you do that, you're going to love them. Try it. It works. It's impossible to hate someone that you're committed to praying for. Because what happens is, as you pray, your heart, your attitude towards that person begins to change. And so rather than responding in kind, you're responding with the heart of God. You have a commitment to loving the Lord in the way that you love others. Then he goes on to say this, and, and he's saying, now listen. If you do this, verse 45 that you might be children of your Father who is in heaven. In other words, if you're doing this, it is identifying yourself as belonging to Him. Because only those who belong to Him, only those who are submitting to His radical claim on their lives, only those who are born of God, born with a new spirit can love this way. And so the fact that you do that identifies you as being God's child. You're identified with your father because you're like him. You're living like him. There are qualities in your life that are like his qualities. And then he goes on to say in verse 45... He causes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Okay? So follow God's example. He, he, the sun shines, the rain comes to those who are good and those who aren't so good. Those who maybe deserve it and those who don't deserve it. This is called common grace. The sun, the rain. It falls on both, doesn't it? As an expression of God's care and His concern for His creation, for those He created in His image. God sets the example. Follow God's example. Look look at what He does. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Whether they deserve it or not. He does something good for them. He extends grace towards them. If you love those who love you, verse 46, what reward will you get? Are not even tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Here's the point. As citizens of the kingdom of heaven, our standard, how we conduct ourselves, how we treat each other, and how we treat those around us, even our enemies, is different. It sets itself apart. It's startlingly different. That's how everybody else lives. That identifies you as as my disciple and, and as my disciple as one who will inherit and live in the kingdom of heaven. Right? You're manifesting visibly in your conduct, in your thought, his kingdom. And then he goes on to say this. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. It is to execute grace without discrimination. To to be like God. To live in His example. To to seek. Right? To follow Him to the point where your actions and your lives... The choices you make and how you treat each other and those around you are representative of of his very own heart and how he chooses to treat people. Do you see that? That's what Jesus is saying here. That's the ethic of the kingdom. That's the law of love. Uh, It exceeds that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. It exceeds that of other people. And so this is what Jesus is teaching. A.W. Tozer says it this way. He says, nothing God ever does or ever did or ever will do is separate from the love of God. Love is unexpected and undefeated. It is the most powerful weapon in God's arsenal. Love is unexpected. Your enemies don't expect you to respond to them with love. They expect you to respond in kind. Hence, the ramping up, the elevation, the the one upmanship of evil or wrong that takes place. And so love is unexpected. Enemies don't expect you'd have a loving, grace-filled response. But love is undefeated. Love defeated our greatest enemy, death. For God so loved the world that He, what? Gave. He gave. His only Son. God demonstrates His love in this, that while we were yet sinners, when we were hostile... When we were enemies of God, He sends Christ into the world to die for us. when we didn't deserve it. It says grace. This says mercy. First John 4:10 through11. This is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought to love one another. Romans twelve seventeen through 18, and then verse 21. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with what? Good. God doesn't call us to seek revenge. He calls us to a higher standard than the law of retribution. He calls us to the law of love and specifically to be reconcilers. Reconcilers. Do not overcome, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I'm going to read a quote from Diedrich Bonhoeffer. He says, a Christian community either lives by the intercessory prayers of its members for one another or the community will be destroyed. Did you hear that? Jesus says, pray for those who persecute you. Bonhoeffer, eluding on that, says that a Christian community either lives by the intercessory prayers of its members for one another or the community will be destroyed. I can no longer condemn or hate other Christians for whom I pray, no matter how much trouble they cause me. An intercessory prayer... The face that may have been strange and intolerable to me is transformed into the face of the one for whom Christ died. The face of a pardoned sinner. That is a blessed discovery for the Christian who is beginning to offer intercessory prayers for others. As far as we are concerned, he says, there is no dislike, no personal tension, no disunity or strife that cannot be overcome by intercessory prayer. That's why Jesus says, pray for those who persecute you. Pray for those who annoy you, who bother you, who have hurt you, who have wronged you. Pray for them. Intercessory prayer, Bonhoeffer goes on to say, is the purifying bath into which the individual. And the community of faith must enter every day. If we're not praying for each other, what he's saying is we're bound to be hating each other. It's one or the other. Jesus says, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Here's the point. And this is the point that Jesus was getting at. That we're not to think about our harm or how we were wronged. But instead, we're to think about the other person's good. Let me put it this way, in this point. Our actions should be motivated by a desire to do whatever advances the kingdom of heaven and its influences on this earth if responding to an enemy or someone who has wronged me furthers the priorities of the kingdom on this earth, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, then I'm not going to respond in kind. My first concern isn't, gee, how you made me feel. It's how can I be an instrument of reconciliation? How can I be an instrument of the kingdom and its influence on earth. Proverbs 25, 21-22 says this, If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. In doing this, you will keep burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. Now, listen. I don't want you to think that if you do something nice, it's going to hurt the person, so that's why you're doing something nice. That's what, this, is, this is not saying that. What it's saying is, by responding to the person this way, rather than in kind, that it's going to be such a powerful example, so unexpected, that it's going to bring conviction in their life, and that conviction will burn In their being, so that they'll want to change. Make sense? That's what that's referring to. I want to move to my next point. The Christian life is a life that is shaped by the cross. Make no mistake. The Christian life is a life that is shaped by the cross. 1 Peter two twenty three through 24 When they hurled their insults at Him, He did not retaliate. When He suffered, He made no threats. Instead, He entrusted Himself to Him who judges justly. He bore our sins in His body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness the higher call of the kingdom of heaven, the higher call as a disciple of Jesus Christ is to follow him in the more excellent way, the way of love, the law of love, and live for righteousness. And then it goes on to say, by his wounds you have been healed. Now this isn't speaking of Uh, A physical healing I'm sick and as a result of this I'm physically made well what it's speaking of here is our healing from sin and sin's effect on our life that as a result of what Christ has done for me on the cross my sins have been forgiven they've been washed away I'm made whole His righteousness becomes mine. And so here's the question. As one commentator says. Will you follow Jesus' example of cruciform living? You see, if the Christian life is a life that's shaped by the cross, then we are to be cruciformed by it. And disciples are to follow Jesus' example of cruciformed living. A life that is informed and shaped by the cross. By a willingness to put others or the interest of the kingdom ahead of our own. And so this morning, if that's your desire, I know it's mine. I want to lead us in this prayer we can pray this out loud together Heavenly Father in the middle of the chaos we call life may we still may we be still enough to recognize the love you have for your creation may we trust in your unfailing and unconditional love as you have loved us may we love one another Forgive us for the times when we have forgotten the cost of your love, the life of your Son, Jesus. I pray that we will live confidently today, knowing that we are your children, who you have chosen with a plan and purpose in mind. Help us live for you. In Jesus' name, Amen.